Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. September 11, 2001, Cantor Fitzgerald became famous for the worst of all possible reasons. 658 of their employees were missing, presumed dead, in the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. Though Cantor suffered almost twice the casualties of the, uh, the uh, New York Fire Department, their story soon pushed aside as the media ambushed Cantor CEO Howard Ludnick, who went from the face of the tragedy to a pariah in with, within weeks. A stranger-than-fiction account unfolding over the months and years the film captures being caught in the crosshairs of history. We're joined by the director of Out of the Clear Blue Sky, Danielle Gardner. Danielle, welcome to Film School. Uh, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, and thank you. Um, uh, I think it's. I think I want to just uh, establish at the outset. Uh, not only are you a filmmaker, but you have a personal um, connection uh, on on a level that few of us can even imagine uh, with this uh, the tragedy of nine eleven. Tell us a little bit about that, and in, in, in that process, when did you decide that you felt uh, that you wanted to uh, make a film based on your experiences or the, your, all of this experience that you were going through and, your, and so many others? Um, yeah, hi. hi. Uh, my unfortunate and terrible personal connection to September 11th is that my brother was working on the 105th floor the morning of September 11th, and... Um, he unfortunately passed away with um, 657 fellow colleagues at Cantor. I happened to be on the street that morning and saw the first plane, oh. and so I actually was the first person to call, call up there. Oh. And I spoke to people up there who seemed to be a little bit unaware of what was going on. And then I got off the phone, hoping that they would be able to get out. So my life from that moment on the street was forever changed, and it was... Uh, you know, just the world turned upside down in so many different chaotic ways. Uh, I pretty soon thereafter sort of felt a need to sort of documenting the, you know, inexplicable craziness that was going on around me mm-hmm. on every level, because I also, as I, I live in New York, I happen to live right above the, bar- the street they barricaded for downtown New York, because mm-hmm. uh, they, they blocked off lower Manhattan, obviously, because of the, the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And... I started, uh, I guess, I even, I'm, it's a weird emotional response, mm-hmm. but you definitely begin to start to want to tape everything and capture everything, partially because, I always said this, I couldn't really believe what was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of the world seemed in shock. We were in more shock. And nothing seemed real. Yeah, and I just want to remind the listeners uh, that uh, the top five floors of uh, this is it the South Tower. I forget or the North. It's Tower. actually the North Tower. North it was Tower. World Trade Center one. It's the North Tower. Uh, were um, occupied by Cantor Fitzgerald, um, a trading company, a financial firm, and so obviously a company with some serious financial resources. Take five five floors of a of that uh, of that building. So, um, and obviously the amount of people, as you said, six hundred and fifty eight perished. 
Um, and you know, just so people are clear, the impact point was below them, and yes, not a not nobody got out. Right, exactly. Uh, peop- yes, it but there was a tremendous amount of confusion in the first, I'd say, days and then weeks of if anyone had got out, gotten out, if there were any survivors, who was alive, who was dead. There was no way to communicate. The offices clearly were gone, so there was no telephones. It was um, it was. Uh, an unbelievable amount of confusion and chaos and grief and shock. And in the midst of all of this, which is the story I tell in my film, yeah. the company had to reopen for business two Re- days later. Two days. They went, two. they went basically started going back to work the evening of September 11th because they had no, no choice. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there's, there's a, you didn't get too far into this in the film, but there were a competing firms who were pressuring uh, this to happen, which... Sounds like another whole story, really, to be told about the sort of the uh, well, the nature of the business, or it's the nature of this competition, or nature of the moral moral fiber of the people who are pushing for this. I'm not sure where what angle this takes, but it it was just amazing to hear that. It's uh, an um, it's an unbelievable story, and um, basically, for people who haven't seen the film yet, what happened was there's the bond Cantor does the transactions in the bond market. The bond market is run by the participants, essentially. And there was a phone call, and the participants involved said, we're opening tomorrow. If Cantor shows up, Cantor shows up. If they don't, they don't. Cantor had, I think, the vast majority of the trades at this point. So it was clearly, I mean, people can uh, look into this and see what they think. Yeah. But uh, emails came to light later on that made it very clear that this was seen as an opportunity to finally push Cantor you know, out of business and take over their business. And this is on September 12th. It, this is a conference call the night of. and Actually, the conference call takes place uh, 24 hours after. It takes tw- place so about 8.30 on September 12th, though they started getting phone calls the night before saying this is what was happening. Gotcha. And, so. then, and then also another aspect of this, which is, in, by, by the account in the film, if they don't open, they're essentially out of business. That Absolutely. That's, that, to me, is even, I just, how is that? We're, I mean, I is the na- I don't we don't need to go down this whole explanation of the bond market, but just knowing I mean it's unbelievable. That is an unbelievable part of this story, and and you're right to tell people they want to know more. They should look into it because it's something about it says a lot about uh, about uh, that business. It says a lot about a lot of things, and I kind of leave it open to people to, to draw their own conclusions. Yeah, I mean, their line put forth a little bit was that we had to show that we could open for business. I mean, 95, no one in America, I mean, it's not a public market. Right. You know, the stock market doesn't open until Monday. There was no particular reason to open the, the bond market on Thursday. And I think Alan Greenspan shows up on Thursday afternoon in New York City and asks about, well, let's discuss when the bond market's opening. And he was told, oh, it already opened. I mean, it was... Uh, wow. Wow. So, it, so, so there's a, it's, it's, a, it's just the beginning of just a series of crazy events. You know, they have to take out... Well, they had to take out a loan from was it J.P. Morgan? They essentially <laughs> said it was basically a death sentence. If and you can't just, if you can't show that you're viable within yeah. was the first quarter or first first week first week, week first week <laughs> that you're actually a viable entity, where you're essentially signing over all of your assets to J.P. Morgan. That's right. Oh my God. That's right. And, and, and uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And no, and that was interesting because uh, you know this was a crazy, literally, you know, do or die situation com- for the company, and they really had no choice. But the, but the question really always comes up is why did they do it? Couldn't they have just folded up? 
And I think in some sense, in some things, this is both an emotional response and also a very practical response was they had lost 658 people they worked with. And the few survivors, you have to realize, two out of three more than that were gone. Yeah. The survivors who were extremely traumatized felt like it was their duty to go back and to make some money to be able to help the families well, there you of go. all the people they had lost. Yeah. Who was going to take care of 658 families? It was, you know, it was a complete wipeout of whole circles of communities. Because I had said that, you might not know this, the backstory was that after the 93 bombing of the World Trade Center, Cantor yeah. uh, had taken on this theory of let's, let's work with people we have loyalty with and people we like. So they started hiring friends and family. Oh. So we had the situation of what we call doubles and triples. Yes. And families who lost two or three at a t- and, you know, in this tragedy. Right. So. Right. And, and, and another aspect to this is, and we'll get into this uh, as, we, as we go, f- go forward in the, with the story, but um, the, the ability not only just, I mean, to carry on, I mean, obviously, uh, as you described it, you know, this sort of determination to not let this be the end of, of this enterprise of their business, but all of the expectations regarding how the family members and the survivors were going to get through the next many years of their life would have been evaporated, would have evaporated had they just folded up and walked away. And, um, you know, so it, it, it uh, it's just it, that part of the film, so much of it is uh, the film uh, Out of the Clear Blue Sky, which will be playing at DocuWeek, by the way, in New York City, where you're, where you're are right now mm-hmm. starting today i believe that the tent through it goes for a couple of weeks and and then out here starting on the 17th uh it'll be out yes, here at the lemley's noho seven right we'll the start next seven. uh friday next friday uh and you'll be out by the way and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, as well but you'll be out uh to do q and a's uh regarding out of the clear blue sky during yes. uh, d- during docu week but um it, it's uh, just that's a remarkable part of this film, uh, but I, in my my mind, so much of the the film is uh, focuses on Howard uh, Ludnick, the CEO, who in the first few hours of this horrible tragedy of nine eleven uh, was seen as uh, someone who embodied the grief and the sort of distress and the face. He was in some ways the face for many of this tragedy. And this is what this film chronicles, is not only Cantor Fitzgerald, but his particular journey, as well as many, many family members. You, you, you got a nice cross-section of people. Tell us a little bit about Howard Ludnick and uh, just kind of a little bit about those first few hours, first few days uh, after 9-11. Um, uh, well, Howard, is, uh, Howard was, I think sort of famously at the point, was uh, taking his, child, his son to his first day of school. Yeah. When he, and he was actually at the school when he got a call about something's happening at the World Trade Center. He actually rushed down there thinking there was an opportunity to save people. Mm-hmm. And he essentially, you know, I, it, the, the story, the film really chronicles his first, his first few days and it goes through yeah. almost the following next 10 years because this is a never-ending story for us. Right. But what had happened was he chose to go on TV and do and three interviews, one for each of the networks on the Thursday afterwards. Mm-hmm. And really, I think, to his sort of, not to anyone's surprise, he was very emotional and quite distraught because he had lost at that point, he thought, 700 fam- people. 
And he very much immediately keyed in on the fact that these were going to be people with no support. Right. It wasn't an industry where people had life insurance or had any kind of funds. And this went, you know, it's not just traders. It was people who worked in the food industry and there, you know, they had, they had um, cafeterias. They had everything. It was a range of people, and no one had any kind of real financial stability. And he also lost and, his brother. As and, well. he, and, you know, and, then, and he lost his, his brother. Yeah. You know, and his sister, and he had also, you know, Howard previously in his life had been orphaned at a young age, so he was very, very close to his only brother and his sister, who both worked with him. His sister was not there, and his brother passed away, and he, uh, you know, he's probably the only person, which is interesting because the film breaks down into employees, people, survivors that worked at Cantor, and the family members, and Howard is the sole person who fits into both of those groups. Yeah. And in some ways, he always said that the reason he only reason he could talk to the family members at all was because he was one of them. You know, yeah. he lost he lost a brother, and I can just tell you from being a family member, it was really difficult to hear other people speak to you who are not in your situation. And I think he was absolutely correct in the fact that I think he spoke to one the nation because his grief was real, mm-hmm. and he was you know, and so when he went on TV I, and he asked for help, there was a huge outpouring from America for help, and he became very. You know, I think it was a little bit, we were somewhat unaware of it, but he became very, you know, famous for the worst reason in the world, is that he had the most people in the world, you know, die, die who worked yeah. for him. And, and, and he really powers through and keeps to it and sticks it out. Yeah, and, and I, I, again, I am, we're speaking with Danielle Gardner, the uh, director of the documentary, Out of the Clear Blue Sky, which will be playing at DocuWeek, which is a terrific organization, by the way. Uh, IDA, they support uh, documentary filmmakers uh, in so many ways, including um, uh, the uh, uh, f- screening their their films. It gives them an opportunity to become eligible for the Academy Award nomination, um, and it's, they're terrific. So go support DocuWeek, uh, not only in New York, but also here in Los Angeles. And I don't want to give too much of the film away. Because I, I, I think I, I, I would like to say that the film is, and this is what, to me a mark of a great documentary, it, a story that you're familiar with, but you don't know the story. And I think that that's what the strength of Out of the Clear Blue Sky is about, is, is, is that, yeah, you know something. You, remember, you may remember Howard. You're, you know, obviously, everyone remembers 9-11 and what happened, but um, it's a film that goes into that and the reaction of the family members. Gathering these family members up for this film, what what was that process like for you? How did you kind of get pick and choose who you were going to use? Um, uh, first, I'd like to also say, just in terms of what we were trying to do as a, as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. was I was also uh, to tell to tell people. Hopefully, they'll come see the film. Is that it's very much of a narrative. It's a story. So when you start off at the beginning, you go through an incredible journey with these people, and it's told as a narrative. So it's told in chronology, and you see it unfold sort of as it unfolded for us. And so it quite, takes quite shocking turns and surprises because, because that's, the story really could not have been made up. Um, in terms of the families, the families are, you know, it was, I knew a lot of the families beforehand, mm-hmm. but the people in the film I interviewed are actually people I met after, mostly people I met afterwards. Mm-hmm. And what happened with the family members is we really turned slowly, found each other and turned to each other because, we were unfortunately fellow travelers, and no one could, else could quite understand what our experience was. And as I say, thankfully, everybody else who's not a family member, be thankful. <laughs> um, it, but um, 
I spoke to a lot of people. As you will see, we had a lot of town hall meetings with family members. Mm -hmm. A lot of people came up to me, and I started speaking to them. And I did a lot of interviews. Unfortunately, some of them didn't make the film, but we definitely, um, but I definitely, you know, the big issue with the family members was trying to figure out a way that they can emotionally handle an interview of the sort that we were doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, as as I say, is that I was a family member, so our conversations were extremely intimate and knowing in a way that film, that it couldn't possibly be with someone who was not a family member. Mm-hmm. So I worked very, very hard to create a very a comfortable environment so they could speak entirely freely. And I, and I hope that comes across the film that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I basically, I, I chose, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, you choose people who you feel, you, who you feel. I wanted them to, to come across and have strong voice mm-hmm. and be really to- completely honest. I felt a lot of times that people, a family member, I saw a lot of TV about this, and I'd always see the family members, and they always seem to be giving these sort of expected responses. And then when you talk to people off the screen, they spoke to us totally differently. So mm-hmm. I wanted to get as much as possible the real reaction, the real feelings, the real emotions, the, the re- you know, what was best as possible to represent what we were actually going through. And so I, sp- so I spoke to many, many family members, um, and I have to say I'm impressed that they trusted me so much, and I'm sort of indebted to them for that trust. Yeah, and it comes across. Uh, there, there are, I, you know, I don't want to single, want to single out so many of them, but uh, just their, their very frank conversations uh, about the loss and how it changed them and changed the people and, the, and their, you know, the family, and just uh, it's, you know, uh, there we now have. And so the, what are we looking at, 11 years hence? Yeah. Uh, and just watching that footage again, uh, just uh, it's, it's, it's in some ways more difficult to watch that footage of the, the plane crashing into uh, the tower and just sort of remembering the, all of that stuff. It comes back up pretty quickly when you watch it, and it's, such, it's unbelievable. It's, it's still unbelievable, and I think... Uh, you can speak to this better than I. Is it still, in some ways, that a feeling that you have, or is it too real? Uh, no. no, I actually think it's always going to be unbelievable. <laughs> I, my horrible, yeah. horrible sort of macabre joke afterwards was that I was taping everything yeah. so that when everyone came back and said, you know, what do you, what do you guys been doing? We could tell them, look, we actually believe they talked us into thinking this actually happened, you know, yeah. <laughs> because it was it was the impossible happening in front of your eyes, and. I don't think any of us have ever completely said this is the real. As someone says in the film, denial is in, you know, stays with you always. There is a point at which it doesn't seem real. But obviously we've all gone on and people have been incredibly strong and, and lived. Yeah. But, yeah. And that is but a- as I hasten to say, the film is, I'm hoping is the film is, is, is very much a story. And we had, you talk about the footage, we had a very big debate as filmmakers about whether to, how to use the footage not be gratuitous about it, not be sensational about it, and to make sure that it holds its power because it had been shown so many times. And we were very, very careful to use, we did end up using the footage of the buildings and the day uh, because that's the emotional basis of our story. But we were very, very careful to do it very much, to use footage only that would show from our perspective, from a family member's perspective, because my goal was to make, put the audience in the position that we were in, yeah. and to make it experiential and make them identify. 
Well, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, and uh, I, it's uh, again, the film is Out of the Clear Blue Sky, filmmaker Daniel Gardner. You'll be here in Los Angeles uh, within the sound of my voice here. Uh, the, the screening uh, at, during Docu Week at the, uh, at the Lemley NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Uh, there's a Friday the 17th, um, and it moves uh, almost every day uh, through the week. You can you have an opportunity to catch it, and you'll be here for which of these uh, screenings? Do you know the specific? Uh, yeah, I'll be there from Friday the August seventeenth. I'll be doing a Q and A at the seven twenty showing. Okay. I'm on the evening showings of Friday, yeah. Sunday, and Monday. Okay, through the twentieth, and um, you know it's an incredible story and a very strong narrative. And as 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 uh, you said, um, it's it's a different it's a definitely different look and different insight into this. It is. No. It is, and it's. It's, it, it's. We all. We all familiar, but we. But again, I, I would underscore that this is. It is it tells a story that um, that we may. We certainly do not know. I didn't really know the full range of the scope of this documentary covers, and uh, I appreciate that. And uh, as we said before, to say enjoy is not exactly the right word, but it is an enlightening and uh, and compelling documentary. And I urge everyone to get up to DocuWeek to support the film and to support uh, DocuWeek as well. So thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Mike, very much. Thank, thank you. You take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.